Well, last week we did, like I say, a fairly rapid introduction. I, um, like I say, we went through fairly quickly these first 11 pages just because I didn't think there would be anybody here who would have any complaints or problems with this initial material and the fact that the Holy Spirit is God and that the Holy Spirit is in fact a person, not a human, but a person, that is he has all the qualities of personality. Uh, and so we started with that, talked a little bit about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the other members of the Trinity, uh, since we talk about God in three persons. Uh, he is the third person. And so we talked about his personality and then his relationship to the other members of the Trinity. They're all equal in essence, although they do have something of a hierarchy within their, uh, within their function. And so we found that the, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit on his New Testament mission. And so that seems to be the relationship there. Uh, not a difference in their being. It's not as though the Holy Spirit is less worthy of our worship or uh, less God than the other two members of the Godhead. Uh, but uh, he does seem to fall under the other two as far as the authority structure within the Godhead. Tonight what we'd like to do is start in on a, the broadest topic. Like I said, we're going to be working with some sort of concentric circles as we uh, go through this uh, Material. We're going to start most broadly with the Holy Spirit's work in the world. That is something that he's doing on behalf of everyone. Uh, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit just doing something for us Christians. Uh, but uh, I, th I think we, we're remiss if we ignore the fact that he's doing something also on behalf of everyone. So we're going to spend some time tonight talking spe specifically about that. Uh, as we work through... Uh, we're going to move a little bit narrower, um, and we're going to talk about what he's doing with believers. And in there, we're going to be talking about what the Holy Spirit has done for believers of every age, of every era. Uh, the Holy Spirit's ministry today is different in some ways uh, from his ministry in the Old Testament. And so what we want to deal with then will be the Holy Spirit's work for all believers. Then we're going to narrow in a little bit further and talk about the Holy Spirit's activities in the church, that is, New Testament believers. Uh, what is the Holy Spirit doing differently today uh, than what he was doing, say, in the Old Testament? So that's, that's our general outline. There's going to be some caveats here and there as we go. Uh, like we're, we're going to talk, I, I stick in here a, a, a some material on the Holy Spirit and his role in revealing things to us. And uh, I, I also added here in the church area the, the, how the Holy Spirit guides us, always a big topic of discussion, how is the Holy Spirit um, guide? When we talk about the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but what does that look like or what does that sound like? or what, what does it, how, do we, how do we know we're being led by the Spirit and not being led by a bout of indigestion, for instance. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, so th that's our general outline for the rest of the class. And so tonight we're going to be starting in on this broadest, the biggest circle here, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. I start here by saying uh, that we're a bit myopic if we limit our discussion of what the Holy Spirit's doing 
to his activity in salvation and what he's doing in the local church. Uh, he has other functions uh, outside of these realms. Uh, he deals with, uh, we're going to deal with the creation of the world, what he's doing in providence, what he's doing in common grace. We'll talk quite a bit about that tonight. That'll be the largest part of our discussion tonight, talking about common grace. Uh, we tend not to think of anything, when we, when we say grace, well, we all know the what is the, the sort of the Sunday school definition: God's riches at Christ's expense. You know the acronym G R A C E: God's riches at Christ's expense. I think it's a very good definition. But we tend to to limit our thinking when we talk about grace to what God does to save us. But we recognize that everything that we get in life, every breath of air that we breathe, every bite of food that we have, is by the grace of God. Uh, it's not just you know just neutral out there that God has to supply this for us. This is something that God doesn't have to supply, yet He does. And we need to we need to talk about why God does that and how God does that. And the Holy Spirit, I think, is intricately involved in that. We're going to start though here by talking about how the Holy Spirit was active in creation. In fact, He seems to be rather uh, a significant player in the creation, specifically of life. Um, we see him appearing in uh, the Old Testament with this special role as the life giver in creation. Some of these uh, uh, we'll turn to. Some of them I'll just I'll just uh, read for for sake of time. Uh, but uh, Job 33:4 suggests that the Spirit of God has made me, and His His breath gives me life. Uh, so we find that. Uh, the Holy Spirit is active in supplying the life. And now there's the question, how, how is it that light springs into a person? And the Holy Spirit apparently is actively involved in that. Now, uh, we perhaps could go a little bit too far with that. And some would say that uh, this passage in Genesis 2-7 that says he breathed into our nost- Adam's nostrils the breath of life man became a living soul. Some would say, okay, there was the Holy Spirit that was breathed into Adam, and so he had some sort of spark of divinity. I think that probably goes a little bit too far. Remember, this is a term, this term ruach, that's used here. Not there because it's a, not a, so a ruach, it's a, it, it, is a, it is a term that can be translated spirit, it can be translated breath or air. And so what God does is breathe into us ordinary air. Don't, don't read in that that the Holy Spirit is somehow you know, you know, flowing through us, giving us life. But we do know that the Holy Spirit was very active in that, in giving us uh, life. Now, Psalm 104 says something the opposite here. Uh, Psalm 104 uh, which, if you're uh, familiar with uh, Psalm 104, it is the longest creation account in the Bible. I tend to think of Genesis 1 as the creation account in the Bible. It's the first one we come to. But actually, if you take a look at Psalm 104, it's the longer one. Um, Genesis 1 seems to be dealing quite a bit with the what of creation, and Psalm 104, a little bit more with the how and why of creation. And we find here in Psalm 104 that the Holy Spirit was active here. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, 
they die and return to the dust. And here's the critical part. When, when you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So the Holy Spirit is active in granting life, and his removal means the removal of life. So the Holy Spirit is very active here. He's connected here uh, with physical life. And the whole human spirit depends on the Holy Spirit for its very survival. Um, we take it for granted that that next breath is going to come, and we assume just because it always has, it will tomorrow, next hour, uh, and the week after that. And why are we kept in life? Well, we are kept in life by the very Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in keeping each one of us in life. And when we die, we do recognize, I think there's some satisfaction here, as much satisfaction as there can be in death, that when our life leaves us, it was not by happenstance or chance. Our breath was removed by the Holy Spirit. And so he's, he's integrally involved not only in giving life but taking it away. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and that includes everything, including life. So uh, don't be alarmed uh, by, by the things that occur in the universe. They don't take God by surprise. He is he's one who's orchestrating them all. So he gives life, takes life away. And then we find in Genesis 1-2 that the Holy Spirit is also active in the creation process along the way. And uh, we see here perhaps a precursor of his role in providence in the, in the universe. It's in Genesis 1-2, we find that after the initial creation of the original material, what do we find? The Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. Well, what was he doing? And, of course, that's a question that you know, commentators puzzle over. But it seems most likely that the, uh, the most likely explanation here is that he's holding it all together by his providence and making sure that it just doesn't, you know, disassemble there. He holds it together. And uh, he seems to be uh, very active as the agent of God's providence in holding the world together. Next, let's turn here to comment. By the way, any questions, holler out at any time or comments. Um, I don't have to be the only one speaking here. So uh, have any uh, questions or comments along the way, I welcome them. Um, if you have a question, probably someone else does, and I'd rather be answering some of the questions that you have than answering questions that you don't have. Uh, so uh, if you have them, uh, why, why holler them out. Or wave your hand, one or the other. I guess we don't holler out in the classroom. Uh, Holy Spirit and common grace, then. And we tend to think, like I say, of grace as something that has to do only with salvation. Uh, but I think we can talk about grace in a broader sense, in a non-salvific sense. And here's the definition I've given here. Operation of the Holy Spirit based on the atonement of Christ and on God's merciful and benevolent attitude toward all people by which he immediately or through secondary causation restrains the effects of sin, provides non-salvific blessings, enables the positive performance of what I call civic righteousness and relative good among all men. Uh, now, don't, uh, before I give the explanation, don't, don't, don't balk at that yet. I, I, hopefully we're not going to do anything uh, uh, heretical here by talking about relative good. 
what I mean by that is something that is externally good, that it corresponds at least externally to the righteous expectations of God, uh, whether or not it corresponds internally. Um, and uh, we'll see if we can unpack. We're going to try and unpack this this whole this whole uh, concept. So if, if those those concepts came at you rather rapidly here, and you wanted to know what I meant by them, we'll try and unpack every piece of this definition here as we go along. So don't be alarmed. Okay. So first of all, why do we need it? Why do we need it? Well, because of total depravity. At the fall. All men became totally depraved. They became wholly evil, incapable of any true good. And I think we're all familiar with that. There's none that doeth good. There's none who seek after God. Um, uh, Romans 8, a man without the Spirit cannot please God, neither is he able to. Um, so we, we the, Jeremiah 17:9, the, the leopard, can he change his spots? And, of course, that's laughable, can, you know, and a leopard decides, yeah, I don't have stripes tomorrow. Uh, no, it can't be done. And then, 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 then the punchline, well, neither can you, who are accustomed to be doing evil, do what's good, because it's our nature. Our nature has been so totally corrupted that we are incapable of any true good. But, having said all that, a question comes immediately to mind. Well, then why do some people do good things? <laughs> and when we look around and we, we see that. Two questions here emerge. If man is totally depraved, how do we explain Mother Teresa, for instance? Uh, I mean, she, she, she did some nice things. A lot of people do nice things. My, my neighbor, unbeliever, uh, old man, but uh, he got up early every morning, and he always he always beat me to shoveling the walk in front of my house. And he, up till he was about till he was 85, he would do this. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. I didn't really want to get up that early, so so, so he would do that. I mean, nice guy, uh, unbeliever, uh, but uh, he was a nice fellow. So how do we explain that? That's one question. Second question, and this is sort of the only other side of things, if God is truly holy and cannot look upon sin, then why, in fact, does he allow evil people to survive? And even thrive in their depravity. So these are these are these are tough questions. You know, why aren't there people like George Burns? You know, those people who just never seemed to die, and they were just so corrupt and evil, and you know, and, and they they seemed to live forever. And so, so how do we explain those kinds of things? And the answer here is common grace. I think that that supplies the answer to both of these these things. And again, we'll see if we can unpack this. Now, how is it that God gives us common grace? That's our next question. I say here the basis for it is the atonement, which perhaps seems a little weird, because uh, we tend to think of what was what was Jesus doing on the cross, doing something for believers. He was, you know, taking away our sins and giving us eternal life. And so here I'm saying that he's doing something more than just that. I'm suggesting here that he's doing something, something for everyone. Uh, there's a perpetual debate as to. You know what? What exactly was Jesus doing on the cross? Was he was he trying to provide something for everyone, or was he trying dying to save specific people? And we're not going to get into that question tonight. Take too long. It's a, it's ancillary to our whole discussion here. But I do think there was something, something that the Holy Spirit, that no, Holy Spirit, Jesus was doing on the cross on behalf of everyone. And let's see if we can't we can't establish this. Okay. 
So why is it that God allows evil people to survive? Why is it that he even allows them to thrive, even more than survive? I say the only answer is atonement. Now, I say there's no single verse that anchors common grace to the atonement. There's, there's a verse in Hebrews 2 that might come close, but I, I'm not sure that it does. But I think this conclusion is theologically necessary, regardless of whether we have a proof text. Why do I say that? Well, apart from atonement, there is no basis for a holy God dealing with sinful people in grace or mercy. God cannot look with favor upon sin. can't happen. Could you define atonement? Atonement is what Christ is doing. When Christ died on the cross, he was securing something for a group of people. And so what I'm suggesting here is that apart from that, that Christ dying on the cross to secure the benefits of all kinds of grace, that there could not be anything positive that occurs in the universe. So without that, God would have snapped his fingers and the whole world of humanity would have dropped over immediately. There would be there would be no other in fact there would be no other recourse for God. Now not that I want to limit God here. I think God limits himself by his own nature and character. He cannot look upon sin with favor. He can't do something nice for bad people. Yet he does. And so the question is, how? And I think the answer has to be that Jesus provided that for them. Some sort of temporary benefit of the atonement is, uh, is common grace. I say common grace is grace. Undeserved, unearned, even unwanted favor from God. There's only one kind of grace that God extends. And we talk about common grace and special grace, but really there's only one kind of grace. It's the kind of grace that is unmerited favor from God. Now, it may take different forms, salvation, or just you know the rain falling and the sun shining. Uh, but, uh, but it's all grace. And there's only one basis for grace, and that's the atonement of Christ. Okay. So, then we ask, how, how does that work? Well, if we understand atonement to be wrapped up in the idea of substitution, then how is it that we have Christ substituting on the cross? You know, Christ did not substitute for the non-elect. I mean, he did not actually take their place and take their punishment, or else they wouldn't actually have to endure it themselves. I mean, there's, there's something he's doing, but it doesn't appear that he's actually substituting and taking their punishment because they received the punishment. So there's, there's, some, there's some give and take here, and it's a big debate. But I think we, but coming down to this topic, common grace, how is it that a substitutionary atonement can supply this? Well, some would actually come along and say, no, there is no such thing as common grace. Um, in fact, over on the western side of the state, there's a there's a sort of a cluster of folks. There. The uh, uh, Reformed Pre-Presbyterian Association, I believe, is what their name is. Small group, uh, but they deny that there's any any that uh, that the unbelievers get anything good from from Christ in the atonement. And so their explanation of the fact that you know nice things happen to bad people, that's 
that's actually just a, an accumulation of punishment. Okay, that's, that's their explanation here. So if something nice happens to them, that means the fury of God is just going to be that much more severe when it falls. So that's the first option. I'm not sure that that works because the fact is positive things accrue to the unrighteous uh, and they not only just fail to get immediate punishment, but they actually get pleasure and joy. And uh, it, it seems like God's doing something more than just storing up wrath for people. He's genuinely kind to people. In fact, that's the term that's used, right, in, in Acts. He's kind to people. Well, it's not kind to just store up wrath against people. So it seems like there's something kind, something positive that God's doing for them. Some would suggest that, you know, it's not necessary for God to die in order to give these, these, these people these nice things. They would say it's just, you know, the love and mercy of God. Just because God is a benevolent God, this overcomes any wrath that he has directed towards them, and he just is nice to them. But the problem is that's inadequate, because there has to be some sort of an ethical or judicial basis for a holy God dispensing grace. God, we, have to, we have to recognize that the holiness of God and the love of God cannot be extracted from one another. It's not as though you know, God can just you know, will himself to be extra loving and overcome depravity with love. They have to, they have to, they have to exist together. Um, in order for God there to be an expression of love, there has to be a satisfaction of holiness. You can't, there, can't be, there can't be love extended without that satisfaction of holiness. And so there has to be an ethical basis uh, for any grace that God extends. So I, I, again, so we're, we're rejecting this one. Now we're getting to three and four, and here's where they get a little tricky. <coughs> yeah? I was just going to say, with common grace, what happened before the cross? With common grace, I mean, no one... I would say that, no one, yeah. You know, God destroyed the earth. Same thing about people getting saved before, before the cross. Apparently, God, you know, being unrestricted by time, and His, and the fact that His uh, His uh, His decree is such that it is certain in the mind of God, even though we who are temporally bound, time-bound creatures, say, well, it hasn't happened yet. I think, as God, He's not bound by time. I think everything is an eternal present for Him. Further, His decree, being a true decree of God, can be so certain that he can regard it as being done. And so I think on that basis, even though it hadn't actually happened within history, that God can, on the basis of that event that will be with certainty, uh, extend the, the benefits to those who live before that time. That's my, my take on that. Because there's people saved in the Old, Te the Old Testament, and... Second Corinthians 15 talks about two categories of people. People who are in Adam or in Christ. There's not really another category. So, unless, unless you're in some sense connected to the atoning work of Christ, there's no, there's no life. Uh, unless, you, unless you're going to suggest that somebody could be saved by the works of, by keeping the law, and so you have a category of in law, not not mom and law here, but you know, in law, you've got two categories here, right? And so that's my understanding of how it works with special grace, saving grace. And so I would 
I would give a similar similar answer for a common verse. So, so you're saying eternity past is how he looks at it. Well, if I understand if I understand God as being the creator of time and space, there is a sense in which he stands outside. He and, and that's, that's kind of mind-boggling for us um, because we are space-bound and time-bound. Somehow we can imagine there being some place that isn't space, but somehow it's hard, harder for us to say some time that isn't time. Uh, but So would it be inherent in his character? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, he's the creator of time. So if he created time, then he stands outside of it. So, so he can. I, if, and, and I would say for God. In fact, if we went to the doctrine of God here and we're talking about eternity, I would argue that God, by saying He's eternity, it means more than that He didn't have a beginning and didn't have an end. He's not time bound at all. Everything for Him is an eternal present, which is kind of weird to think about. Just, just the same way he's related to space. I mean, he can be everywhere and anywhere because he's not bound by space. Right? And so, so the fact that there is no time in God would mean that there is no looking forward, per se, to the cross and looking backward to the cross. He can look at that as part of his decree and also as something that is done in the mind of God, at least. He exercises faith, wouldn't you say? What is that? He exercises faith. Well, I, I'm not sure that God exercises faith, perhaps, but we've got to exercise faith in order to accept this. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. It's I mean, this is mind-boggling kind of stuff. Whenever we talk about the nature and character of God, it is because He is greater than we are and better, better than we are, different than we are. Okay? Let's go to view four here before I go to three. I'm going to actually settle on view three, so let's, let's get rid of the, the, the incorrect ones, at least in my mind, before we go to number three here. Some suggest, number four, that Christ died a substitutionary death for the elect alone, okay, and that collateral and incidental blessings extend to the non-elect by consequence of God's electing purposes. Let's see if I can... Let's, let's try and make this uh, understandable. Okay, God sent Christ to save you, and so in order to save you, we have to somehow get to you. We're talking 6,000 years ago or more when the creation of the world was. And so in order to get to you, he's got to hold all of your family in life, all of your ancestors in life, until we get to you. And so, yes, there is something in it that uh, extends to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa because they had to survive in order to bring you into the world and save you. And so they... They uh, they enjoy, like I say, collateral blessings, incidental blessings, because without them you could never have been there. Okay, so that's that's one of the explanations. But I, and I I think there's a problem with this. First, I think it elevates God's electing purpose to the place of virtual exclusiveness in the plan of God, as though all that God is doing in the universe is saving people. 
There's more to what God is doing than just saving people. And uh, then secondly, it fails to account for the observed fact that common grace is sometimes enjoyed by the non-elect without any reference at all to the elect. Okay, so, you know, in, in that illustration here, you know, after mom and dad, unsaved mom and dad had the child who was destined to become a believer, they lived on. They lived 80, 90, 100 years old, and it has really no reference to to the, the believer at this point. So it seems like something more is going on in keeping the such people in life than just getting to the believers. So my suggestion here is in number three here, that the atonement is substitutionary with respect to particular redemption, so redemption, but satisfactory with respect to the benefits of common grace. So Christ had two intentions in the atonement. He wasn't doing one specific thing. He was saving believers, and he was satisfying God's wrath against the non-elect, sufficiently enough to provide them grace. And I say this has the advantage of offering an explanation for the fact that there are universal terms used with the atonement. He did something for all, everyone, everything, everyone gets something in the atonement, but it... it and, and then, and then the, the question here with the, is with the substitutionary. Um, how does it account for the substitutionary? Well, the answer is, is in this explanation, that it's not so much substitutionary as it is satisfactory. So God took enough of the wrath of God against people, the non-elect, to keep them in life. And so he, he endured something uh, so that those people could stay in life, that they could enjoy uh, the benefits of life for all this time. So realize that uh, the, what God has done and what Christ did on the cross is broader than just saving you and me and folks in this room. Uh, he has a very large and benevolent purpose that extends far beyond just saving people. There's, some, there's something bigger that God's doing than just something for me. Yes. I was just going to say in Romans 1 mm-hmm. um, it talks about it says there in first twenty four, therefore God gave them over and their sinful desires of their hearts. Mm-hmm. And does that speak of where he kind of removes that common grace at times? For the At least an aspect of it I would I would I I would say yes. At least some aspect of the common grace is is removed. In fact we're gonna see other aspects that can be removed as well. Uh, because conscience is, is an aspect, I think, of common grace. It keeps order in society. And people are born with this with this realization, you know, I can't kill other people. And they, you don't have to teach people that. They know that because it's written on their hearts. That's what Romans says. But there's a sense in which what the conscience can be warped, seared as with a hot iron, as Paul says it. So there's a sense in which that aspect of common grace can be removed or at least distorted, uh, so that it's not not continuing to do its intended purpose there. So yes, and so when I see something terms like that that he gives them over, uh, that he's actually, you know, withdrawing some of the restraint, and you know, there is a sense in which he allows people to store up wrath against themselves, do things 
that are foolish that will damage their bodies. And that's the, that's what the text is, actually damaging themselves. So it is something of a removal of common grace. Does common grace carry over to the uh, angelic angels also? Good in, question. In the realm of it's Satan who sinned, the first sin, obviously, right? Uh-huh. Who's Satan. Right. Uh, and then leave the angels, yet they still have access to heaven. They have, you know, you hear about all these things. Yet he should have destroyed them. I mean, right? I mean, yet their judgment is delayed, you know. Right. His judgment, at least, is delayed. I mean, you know, you know and they're bound. You hear of being in the angels bound in, you know, in captivity until the right time to be released, you know, and all this, right? Yeah, it's a but very it's good... common grace. I mean, he hasn't well, destroyed them. If you haven't been destroyed, then it's common grace that you're still alive. Yeah, and, and, and here I, I probably do have to end up falling back on Hoxima's explanation here that he gives, that whatever whatever seems to be good for those angels can't be all that, as good as we think it is. Now, they're different. I mean, Christ did not die for angels. Right. Christ died for what he became. You know, and he, I mean, that's the point in Hebrews too. Um, he had to be made like his brothers in all ways in order for to make uh, atonement for the sins of the people. He and and angels longed to look into this because they, they scratched their heads. They, just, well, not heads, but, but they, they they longed to understand this, but they but they can't figure it out because Christ didn't die for them. Um, it seems as though they were given, you know, a, a, a binary choice here, an up or down each one. You know, are you going to rebel or are you going to stay loyal? And those who stayed loyal were never, never anything other than holy angels. They were confirmed in their holiness. Uh, there is no, uh, when you say they didn't, he didn't die. I thought he died for all creation. They, they fall under creation, right? Well, he. Or no. He. Well, the, the, the point in Hebrews, the he, point in Hebrews is that in order to actually save people, he had to become a person. Now, there is, there are aspects of the curse that are tied to man. So, you know, Romans says that all creation is groaning, longing uh, for the restoration of man. Uh, so there is something tied with when man fell, the rest of the creation suffered along with him. But it's not as though Christ died for the rocks and the trees. He died for people, and once people are restored, then the rest of the creation is restored with him. Um, but angels don't really seem to fall into that, that kind of category. It's not as though when Adam sinned, he caused Satan's sin. In fact, it's the other way around. Uh, so it does not seem that the, an- the angels fit into that Atonement picture. Nature itself is still perfect at the time that Satan sinned. After right. Yeah. So, so it doesn't seem to be tied to Satan's sin that the whole creation collapses. It's man's sin. Christ died for man, and when man is restored, creation is restored. But the angels seem to fall out of that. I'll fall outside of that. Outside of the, the atonement picture. Right, yeah, I mean, they, they don't fall out, the, the creation umbrella includes the whole thing, but as far as the redemption, the atonement umbrella, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to include the angels. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all inside the creation circle, but...
not the atonement circles. That's right. Uh, but no, you, you, you do raise there. you do raise a very very oh oh that circle yeah <laughs> yeah yeah they you do raise a very interesting and difficult question that uh, you know I had I, I first asked this about a, a year ago how is it that that God is kind to evil angels. In fact, I, I went into Dr. McCune's office, I guess it was two years ago, because he was still around, and I asked him this very question. And he says, he said, that's a very good question. I've never thought of that before. And he said, well, I guess maybe maybe those those folks out in, in western Michigan have something. And I remember I hear he say he said that. I would almost say respectful, because to allow Satan access to heaven, even to allow him to yeah. question God about Job, and to you know, you hear this bantering of you know, back and forth. Uh, yeah. It's almost like what? Yeah. You know, he's evil. Right. Even Jesus himself says he's the. Sure. Know, and he is storing up wrath. So uh, perhaps we could explain it in that way. But uh, honestly, I, I've I've been I've been toying with that question for quite some time, and I haven't. Come up with a real satisfactory answer in my own mind. Yeah, honestly, big deal, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, what does common grace look like? Next page. Well, like say, next page for me. I'm sorry. I, my pages are different than your pages. It may be the next page for you. Manifestations of common grace. First of all, by common grace, God maintains the universe. Hold it together. Colossians 1 says, Not only were all things created by him in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, but all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all, all things hold together. You have your King James, all things consist. I never quite understood that word until my, my, uh, my wife started making bread, and she was talking about its consistency. I thought, huh, now I understand that word. But it took me a while to figure that one out. But it, it holds together, and it sticks together. How, how is it that the, uh, the, uh, the earth holds its form? Well, we can say gravity, um, but I think it's a little bit more than just gravity. God holds it together. And if he ever would remove his, uh, his influence over it, everything would just fly apart, collapse. Acts 17 says, He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things in him we live and move and have our being. So the fact that we exist, the fact that we live and walk about, is by the manifold grace of God. He allows that to happen. It just doesn't happen. God permits it to happen. God, in fact, even more than permits, he causes it to happen. By common grace, God is kind to all people. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. He is good to all. His mercies extend to all his works. Matthew 5, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, I've got a, on the other side my other neighbor. He's a rather foul fellow, foul-mouthed fellow. He's got a garden. I've got a garden. It's not as though the rain comes on my garden and doesn't 
fall on his garden. In fact, if you looked at the garden, you'd think the opposite was the straight case. <laughs> but the fact is, God is kind to both of us. Luke 6, he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. It's amazing what our God does. That's common grace. It's grace. By common grace, he restrains sin. Second Thessalonians talks about the restrainer, all kinds of debate about what it is. You know, he who now restrains will be will do so until he's taken out of the way, which I understand to be a reference here to uh, the Holy Spirit as he is operating in the church will be removed, and as a result of that, what happens? Well, carnage ensues. Uh, everything seems to fall apart after the restrainer is removed. That's that's my take on it. There's all kinds of debate over that one. Um, but something will happen in the end times. Something will be removed that is now exercising restraint. And that's, that's as far as it says. And uh, we sort of have to supply it what's being removed. Um, doesn't seem like governments are re- removed at that point. They're, they're causing restraint. What is being removed? Well, um, my default answer is, well, we do know something's going to be removed. And it does seem like the, the Holy Spirit as operating in believers and in the organized church uh, will be removed. So all those people exercise some sort of a, a restraining influence on culture. And when okay, they're gone, things fall apart. The way I've always understood it is uh, he holds all things together mm-hmm. here on earth. You know, mankind would be, I mean, the evil would be more outward right. without that. So if he removes himself during the rapture, what holds it? Well, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is removed, okay. but the Holy Spirit as mediated through believers. Okay. So yeah, the Holy Spirit is still active in the in the in the tribulation period. There are people, mainly people, get saved during that period. That doesn't happen. They don't do that on their own. Mm-hmm. Holy Spirit is active there. But there is a fa- there is a fact that you know if there's thousands or millions of believers that are dwelt by the Holy Spirit and are in some level of sanctification, they do they do create some level of restraint on society. And that's we know that's going to leave. So it. That that's my default thing to to, to call that what that restrainer is. So, and it, the text itself is not clear on that, but that seems to be the best option that presents itself. Okay, so the restrainer is removed. Uh, Romans thirteen. Human government the discussion here is a minister of God to you for good. Wow. <laughs> Don't like that description, do you? Uh, minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. Does not bear the sword for nothing. It's the minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Is it here last week that I mentioned, uh, I was taking, uh, Dr. McKean comes up here again, uh, but he was, uh, I was taking him, taking his car to the shop, and uh, we're driving along the road, and, uh, you know, and you look down and you see that you know the, the needle goes a little higher than it's supposed to, and we came around a, a bridge, and there he, there was a policeman stand, sitting there. And 
And I, I remember Dr. McKeon, the words he said, well, there's the minister of God. <laughs> it illustrated that verse, you know, if you, if, you, if you do what is evil, be afraid, <laughs> because he bears the sword. And, uh, and we all recognize that when we do things like that. Common grace. And in the form of human government, odd as it may seem, they don't always do as good a job at restraining as they ought, perhaps, but uh, that's what they're there for. Their purpose gives us perhaps a little bit of a clue as to uh, what kind of people we should be voting for, uh, the kinds of people who are going to be restraining evil, uh, since that is their primary purpose. Uh, so, you know, again, I'm telling you who to vote for. I don't even really have anybody specific in mind at this point, but it does, uh, it, you know, even even the elections uh, do not fall outside of, of biblical influence here. Uh, there are there are it's not a neutral decision that you make. Common grace uh, restrains sin. By common grace, God withholds his judgment. In Genesis 6, I am so ticked at all of these people that I'm going to kill them all in 120 years. <laughs> well, 120 years, well, that's, that's some grace. And Acts 17, a difficult passage perhaps to understand, but God temporarily overlooked the offenses of mankind. He used to wink. He at one point winked at them, and not, you know, don't, don't put too much into that wink there, but it, he overlooked uh, their uh, their offenses for, for a while. But now he tells everyone, you need to repent. By God's grace, God extends the gospel offer to people. And Romans 2.4, do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance of God, not knowing that the kindness of God will lead you to repentance? There, there is a sense in which we can talk about common grace as the sphere in which special grace occurs. Um, there is a sense in which pe all people, Romans 1 tells us, know that God exists. And there are, there are countless compoundings of that realization that God exists that occur all throughout this universe. And the kindness of God, in some sense, contributes uh, to people... Uh, being saved. You know, God's goodness, Acts 17 says, to mankind is specifically designed so that they would seek God. And that ideally, that's what would happen. Depravity gets in the way here, but ideally, that's, that's what it's in place for, so that they would seek God. Now, it's not a redemptive thing. Don't think of, of common grace as sort of people inching towards God. And that uh, you know they finally get to get to the point where they, that tipping point, and they uh, embrace God without any sort of special activity of God. Uh, but there is a sense in which the uh, the common grace is the sphere in which uh, salvation occurs. Doesn't free the will. Doesn't place man in a state of moral equilibrium, so that you can act contrary to your nature. Instead, its actual effect is to store up wrath, increases liability punishment. Not only sins, but treats God's patience with contempt, tramples underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, insulting the spirit of common grace. And he hasn't been saved. So he's insulting the spirit of grace, common grace. The point of this passage is to highlight the extreme severity of punishment reserved for unbelievers who have received the greatest amount of common grace. 
Uh, there are places in this world who have that have more common grace than others. If you've ever been overseas, perhaps to a third world country, you recognize that the common grace isn't quite as abundant. And uh, I think those who are who are living with the greatest amount of grace will receive the greater punishment. That seems to be the point with the, um, you know, when Jesus was in, what was it, uh, Capernaum, and uh, people rejected him, and he said, you know, it's going to be better for those people in Tyre and Sidon, okay, than it will be for these people, because they had more grace than those people. So it's going to be better in the day of judgment. So the punishment apparently is going to be more severe for the people who have had more, more grace than others. By common grace, God enables civic or cultural good. I called it relative good earlier. Um, but, uh, you know, in Second Kings, Jehu did well in executing what was right in God's eyes. Well, Jehu ends up being rather a rather rascal. Uh, doesn't seem like he's a believer, but he does well in doing something that's right in God's eyes. Uh, Luke 6, sinners do good to those who good, do good to them. That's, that's nice. Unbelievers do instinctively the things of the law. You know, they're all born with the conscience, and there is a, you know, that conscience does prick people to do what is right and to not do what is wrong. Um, Believers and unbelievers alike. I say here that good is relative. All these good deeds, honesty, virtue, benevolence, advances in science and technology, they correspond to the righteousness of God. They're always ill-motivated. So, you know, people do pray. Let's say that's going to be a good thing. Well, not if you pray to be seen as men. Not if you pray to consume it upon your own lusts. Uh, so even something good externally or righteous that is corresponding to the to the expectation of God externally, even though that's good, it's what all are their righteousness are, are as what? Filthy rags. Okay, So they are righteousnesses. They are externally conforming to what God's expectations are, but they're ill-motivated and they're actually punishable. Okay, So why? Why then do we have common grace? What is it to do? Well, we've already mentioned the one, to direct people to the Lord. We've addressed some of these. Um... You know, Second Peter three nine. Don't know if we have anyone in the situation here. Don't know well, many of you all that well, but uh, a, a a woman with an unbelieving husband can actually do something to contribute to his to to gaining a hearing for the gospel for her husband without a word. Right? You can you can be nice to your husband. You know, maybe ill deserving of it. My wife, my wife, all the time. You know, he's, he'd be nice to them. What does do? He can be one without a word. Uh, no, I mean, that, that, I mean, there's a lot packed into that passage. But I, but I think the point here is that there is something that can con contribute to gaining a hearing for the gospel that really has nothing to do with actually saying the words. There's something that you do in conjunction with the gospel that you are living. In, in such a way uh, that, that it complements the gospel. You're living in a, a, I can use an overused phrase here, a gospel-centered life. Um, and there's, there's something that, that's to that. It directs people to the Lord. It turns their attention to God. And so, so maybe, maybe if this, this, 
this woman can be nice to me even though there's no reason why she should be nice to me, well, then maybe maybe she maybe, maybe I should pay a little attention to what she has to say. I'll turn their turn them to hear the gospel. God alone saves, but uh, there are some things that we can do to earn a hearing for the gospel. Uh, secondly, purpose of common grace to affect an orderly and decent society. Another politics section here. First Timothy two. I in I urge you that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we can live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and humility. <coughs> so we can hope and pray and exercise our God-given uh, privilege uh, to vote people in who will do this. You know, give us a tranquility so that we can actually meet together. Uh, and uh, live a quiet life in godliness and dignity. So common grace, I say, restrains anarchy, rebellion, disorder, chaos. It checks the depravity of men, <coughs> but it does not run rampant on the earth. And, in fact, allows, uh, allows the gospel to advance in a hostile world. Uh, we can pray that uh, you know, we've got missionaries who are now operating in what are called closed countries. And, you know, in some ways they've got to be a little bit sneaky. And we can pray that they, that doesn't have to be the case. That they can actually have the, the way paved so that they can <coughs> give out the gospel freely and openly and in larger quantities. Because that's what common grace does, and we can pray for it. It promotes a general fear of God, a general fear of God. And I think even God gets a little bit of satisfaction out of that. Why do I say that? Well, Jonah... With the whole story of Jonah, uh, Jonah goes in and preaches to Nineveh and says, "You know, you need to con you need to you need to repent, or else you're all going to be destroyed." Actually, he doesn't actually tell them if you repent, you will. He just comes in, you're going you're going to be destroyed. He doesn't really want to extend the grace to them. That's the content of his his message. You're going down. And then he, then what does he do? You know, he gives his message and phew, to the hillside. Where's the, where's the fire and brimstone? I want these people gone. They've caused me a lot of trouble in life. And what happens? Well, they repent. Now, did they get saved at this time? Uh, there's a little bit of debate about that, but my inclination is probably not. Uh, there's no indication that they started to uh, follow the forms that were required of, the, of, of Old Testament believers. In fact, it doesn't take very long until they're back on the warpath, destroying nations again, including Israel. Uh, so it doesn't seem like the whole the whole city converted at this point. But there was some general fear of God. You know, I think God, in in some sense, was pleased when he saw those people at least acknowledge that he could zap them and give them at least some of his due. And so he was. It was a general fear of God that was that was. Uh, that was uh, brought brought forward here. God postpones his judgment against Ahab when Ahab humbled himself before God. Ahab didn't get saved. We know that. Ahab was a horrid fellow. In fact, all the bad kings of Israel are compared to him. Uh, okay, were, were they worse than Ahab or better than Ahab? Because Ahab was the standard of evil in the Old Testament. But yet, God withheld something from him. 
A. Hodge describes common grace. That's a little bit of a thick paragraph here, but I think it makes some sense here. Uh, he calls it the restraining and persuading influences of the Holy Spirit acting only through the truth God revealed in the gospel or through the natural light of reason and conscience, heightening the natural moral effect of such truth upon the understanding conscience heart. It involves no change of heart, but simply an enhancement of the natural powers of the truth, the restraint of evil, passions, and an increase of the natural emotions in view of sin, duty, and self-interest. That's what we see around us when we see things that are good in a depraved area. And so what is that increase? Well, it's not salvation, but it's grace. And God supplies it. And then there's sort of a catch-all category, innumerable blessings. God blessed Laban because of Jacob. God blessed Egypt because of Joseph. That was a manifestation of grace, and it's manifold. Okay, so common grace. So that's what the Holy Spirit is doing on behalf of all people everywhere. Not evenly, perhaps, but everybody gets a manifestation of the grace of God that we can call common grace. And it's, I think, administered here by the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of providence in, in our universe. Questions on that? Okay. Well, we're about about time to go here, about three minutes uh, left, so uh, we'll just go ahead and let you go a couple of minutes early tonight, and uh, we'll uh, pick up here uh, with the Holy Spirit and what he does with respect uh, to sin next week.